everyone, welcome to the final episode of Conservation Chronicles. It's just Jonah here for this last episode. Um, we weren't really sure what we were going to do for this episode, just because we've been so busy, and, um, you know, what kind of topic do you choose for a finale episode? So I just decided that I was going to cover a handful of news articles for this last episode um warning some of them are are pretty heavy um but that's sort of intentional and um and then i'll just sort of wrap up with some reflections this one's kind of interesting um so the national park service recently began an aerial call which if you don't know what a call is that's like an intended killing um, they recently began an aerial cull of mountain goats in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming because their population has has grown really rapidly and apparently is threatening um, a fragile bighorn sheep population in the park. And so they started the cull, but then the governor of Wyoming s- communicated his opposition to... The, the governor and the, um, the head of the fish and game, Wyoming Fish and Game, or Game and Fish Department, sorry, um, expressed their opposition to the operation because Game and Fish wasn't involved in it. And so consequently, national, the National Park Service halted the cull. And I'm, I'm not sure how many animals they killed before they halted it, um, but they didn't finish what they wanted to. And so just a little background on this. Um, Seems like, okay, well, what's kind of the issue around this? So these mountain goats actually colonized Grand Teton from the Snake River Range in Idaho in like around 2013. And so they started with like 10 to 15 animals. And in the past seven years, they've grown to over 100 mountain goats now, which is a pretty rapid growth for an animal that big in that amount of time. And so the the bighorn sheep population in Grand Teton apparently isn't doing very well because they've supposedly been pushed out of high-quality habitat by backcountry skiers, and then the mountain goats can also facilitate disease transmission of the sheep. But I, I'm having a hard time determining whether this is actually like empirical Meaning, is there, like, evidence that this is the negative effect that the mountain goats are having on the sheep? Um, And so, is this really what is preventing the bighorn sheep population from recovering? Is it these things, like backcountry skiing and mountain goats? And And I'm just not sure. Um, so the cull was proposed years ago, like in 2013, I think, when they first the goats first moved in, and they've been de- planning planning the cull ever since, or like developing the plan. And the public largely supports the cull, which is sort of to me is why it's odd that Game and Fish is sort of antagonistic about this. You know, I understand they want to be involved. In wildlife management within the state, but it's it's perfectly legal 
for the National Park Service to be doing this because they have jurisdiction in the park, and so this is sort of a, a conundrum to me. I, I don't understand what what the beef is with Game and Fish other than that they want some say in it. Um, and so I'm just I'm wondering how if they're like this with other projects of the National Park Service, like they, where they want to be involved. Um, or I'm wondering if this is, it's just because this is such a high profile operation. It's also just ironic that these mountain goats came from Idaho too, just as another little piece of this puzzle. Um, and I also just, because I'm cynical, I just can't help but wonder if the state sort of wants this opportunity, wants to take advantage of this opportunity to make some like sport hunting money off the goats. I, I don't know. That's just an unsubstantiated thought of mine. And this is also just sort of an interesting case of, of biogeography, which we talked about in our last episode, in which the goats naturally colonize the Tetons, and now they're threatening the resident bighorn. So it's not like the goats are invasive because humans established them there. They moved in on their own, so it's, it's natural. So what is the... You know, what's the ethical imperative, or is there an ethical imperative to, to eliminate these, you know, these wild animals? It's, it's not like they're an introduced invasive species. Um, and, you know, for longtime listeners, this may be shocking to hear, but I, I don't really know what to make of this issue. I don't really have an opinion of it, because um, I'm, I'm sort of torn. I can see things from multiple perspectives, you know, I can see the issue from the perspective of National Park Service, you know, they are legally obligated to protect species in the park, wildlife and natural resources in the park, and so if the bighorns are threatened, they need to do something about it, and I also see that Game and Fish, you know, they are the state agency that manages wildlife, so they should be involved, um, there's, there's not really a legal argument, so I, I don't know what's going on there. And then also, you know, I don't really know where you draw the line at favoring two naturally occurring species. Um, you know, it if the reason... So maybe the case is that the bighorn sheep population hasn't grown sufficiently, you know, as it's been recovering, to have a, competi- to have a competitive advantage with the goats... But, you know, if, if that's the case, then I, I think I agree with the, the cull because the reason that the bighorn population is low to begin with is because of human activity. So, you know, we sort of have a responsibility to help that bighorn population recover, and if the goats are hindering that, then we need to do something about it. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case in, in the article... Of course, I'll have all these links um, in the show notes. The article was was vague about it. Um, So that's just kind of some interesting tie-ins with things we've covered before, you know, about legal standings of the states as wildlife managers, um, you know, culling problem species, and most recently, biogeography. So... That just happened, so I um, we'll see 
what happens with that from here on out. So, um, speaking more of problem animals, I'm going to try to cover this feral horse news without getting too fired up. Um, but it, it really is its a success in the feral horse issue. Um, and if, you, if you're unfamiliar with this issue, and it is an issue, by the way, um, check out the our feral horse episode from last spring, I believe, um, where my friend Leon came on the show to talk about it with me. Um, so anyways, the piece of actual piece of news is that a federal court just ruled in favor of the Bureau of Land Management's plan to remove over 1,700 feral horses from an area of public land in southeast Nevada. Um, they started this developing this plan in 2008 and it wasn't finalized until 2018 so it kind of goes to show you how the how efficient the federal government is um the blm which is the bureau of land management um they had to conduct environmental assessments to comply with federal other federal laws before they can actually implement this horse removal um, but of course, by the time this was this plan was finalized after a decade, the crazy horse people stepped in and they sued the BLM in 2018 for violating the Wild and Free Ranging Horses and Burrows Act, um, saying that they were favoring livestock grazing um, over the protection of feral horses, and then they also alleged that. The BLM violated the National Environmental Policy Act, which is the the law that requires proper environmental assessment before a federal agency can do any projects. And it's just that that part's just ironic because the project the project they're trying to do is to remove something that's negatively impacting the environment, the horses. So that's ironic and classic crazy horse people. Um, but so fortunately the federal court, you know, ruled that these allegations were false, but of course the plaintiffs are planning to pursue additional legal action. Um, I don't know if that will, I'm sure that it will further delay the plan from being implemented. I don't know, but this, this is, this is, this is absolutely maddening to me and and I really can't can hardly express like my um, my anguish over this situation the whole feral horse situation you know not only did it take a decade for this plan to get put together but now this legal these legal holdups the longer the horses are out on the landscape the more they're multiplying and if you listen to our horse episode you'll learn how quickly they're multiplying and the more impact they're having. And, you know, meanwhile, these horse fanatics and also amongst them are people that are against grazing on public land, which is an entirely different issue. But they're, they're holding up the necessary management action to help the environment that the horses are in. And then they're also tying up a lot of money in courts, federal money and otherwise, that could be used for things that are actually helpful 
and it's it's just it's so illogical and i just i can't comprehend the just this the stupidity of it um so anyways i won't get any more fired up about that but you know speaking of a lot of money the current federal budget proposal um has the feral horse and burrow program increasing their budget by 15 million 15.3 million dollars from the past or from the current fiscal year rather so it the budget is a proposed proposed for the upcoming fiscal year will be 116.8 million dollars just for the federal or for the feral horse and burrow program um and it's increasing and so this this budget is still you know pending approval but it's um to reasons like this this lawsuit crap that this budget has to be so huge and it has to grow because they have to be able to accommodate these lawsuits and so i just i just uh, i don't know i generally feel like sick physically sick sometimes knowing that that much money is well, first of all, going into these ridiculous lawsuits, but also going into, quote-unquote, managing an invasive species. And by managing, I mean maintaining them on the landscape. It's, it's truly one of our greatest conservation failures in this country. And I, I just really don't feel that there's any room to be pragmatic about this issue because it's so serious and, and asinine, frankly, and illogical and all sorts of other um, adjectives. So some, speaking of some more rangeland issues in the United States, um, a new study by researchers uh, from they're from a variety of institutions, but primarily University of Montana, has just found that really the the traditional focus of managers on grass height for sage grass management. Um, is not really as important as everyone thinks. And so if you're from the United States and you're into wildlife, you're probably familiar with sage grouse because the species has got a ton of media and legal and funding and research attention in the past years. And it was a couple years ago proposed to be added to the Endangered Species Act. It was ruled against for the time being, but you know, sage grouse have been in the news for a while because of all this and so the the study's authors perform performed a meta-analysis which means they collated all the findings from a lot of different research on sage grouse like over the past nearly 30 years and the whole point of the meta-analysis meta-analysis is to sort of summarize the, the broad outcomes of all this research over these decades. And so what they found is that all these local studies have found that vegetation around grouse nests has an effect on nest and chick survival. But of course, this is a, a really fine scale. We're talking like a few feet within the net from the nest. And so, you know, just study by study, managers have have consequently latched onto these findings and you know approached sage grouse management as if vegetation height is the number one thing 
that we should be managing for. But the authors of this new study, you know, they questioned, well, if this is true, why doesn't grazing negatively impact grouse like you'd think it would? Um, if, you know, grass and other vegetation height is so important. And that's because, you know, these the findings of all these studies are on a microhabitat scale, and they don't really translate to, like, landscape scale management, which is, of course, the scale that agencies are managing at. And so the, the study's lead author, Joe Smith from University of Montana, he advocates for sagegrass managers to focus on landscape-level threats, and these kind of threats to sagegrass in, include tree encroachment because they need to be... Um, in open areas, uh, invasive grass species that outcompete native grass species that sage grass eat, and habitat fragmentation from energy development, urbanization, and agriculture, which are obviously a common threat to most wildlife. But they're at the landscape level, and you know this is really important when we're losing tens of thousands of acres of habitat every year um, that are causing population declines, including sage grass in some some areas and so I really you know the reason I wanted to the reason I brought up this study is because I like how it 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 takes a rare step back to question the status quo and and actually collate research from decades which which is something I think is is just too rare um, because in science we just like to move forward with new studies um, you know, we talk about science building upon past research, but that doesn't really mean that all scientific work needs to be like additive, meaning we're constantly pursuing novel questions and producing novel results. We need to take a step back sometimes, especially because, you know, wildlife science is influencing conservation and so we need to take a step back and be like okay is all this science adding up and are are we effectively managing based on this all this research and you know this this process just really needs to involve reassessing the results of past studies to to see if they continue to be supported and if they're just effective and so um I just really like that approach that it took, and basically my take-home is question the status quo, because that's sort of what I'm all about. Um, <clears throat> so, st staying in the United States, um, let's talk more about how money is spent, which is one of my favorite topics to be critical of. <laughs> um, so, this is, this is really disturbing news. Um, like most of what I'm going to be talking about in this episode. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that federal budget that is pending for the upcoming fiscal year. Well, in addition to, you know, the Feral Horse and Burrow Program getting an increase in funding, there's major cuts to a variety of conservation programs um, spanning multiple federal agencies. And so I don't want to get bogged down in the actual, you know, individual amounts of all this money. But just so you know, 
the proposed budget cuts for all these conservation programs is over three quarters of a billion dollars. So that's how much is going to be cut for federal conservation programs. If this is approved. So the conservation stewardship program, which is under the farm bill, would be completely eliminated. So this program provides financial and technical support for landowners that that um, sort of like meet certain requirements as land stewards. And, you know, unfortunately in this world, people need incentives to be good stewards. So the loss of this program may not bode well. Um, the conservation reserve program budget would be cut by $706 million. Just a little chunk of change there. Um, this program f provides financial and technical assistance to farmers who will replace crops on sensitive land with vegetation that improves, you know, environmental quality and promotes wildlife habitat. Um, so there goes more incentives to be a responsible human. Um, if only people didn't require these incentives. And then some other agriculture and forest forestry programs would be eliminated, eliminated or their budgets decreased. Um, but an equal number of programs are proposed to have stable or slightly increased budgets. But unsurprisingly, some of these programs that will receive, you know, a stable or an increased funding deal with resource extraction and utilization or wildlife management, or not wildlife management, wildlife damage. So landowners will lose funding incentives to be good land stewards, but maintain or gain opportunity to be compensated for living alongside wildlife that quote-unquote damage what they're doing. Um, that's how it sounds to me, very generally, and that's, that's pretty sad. Um, the state and tribal wildlife grant budget would also be halved, which is pretty serious because this program really provides the bulk of the funding for non-endangered, non-game species, and they sort of operate by the motto, keep common species common. So, you know, getting rid of this funding, um, it's just, it's like, no, let's, let's spun, spend money elsewhere now and wait until these common species actually need help later, and then we'll do something about it. It's just very economically foolish. Um... U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service budget will decrease by 17%. Department of Interior funding will decrease by 13%. The Land and Water Conservation Fund would decrease by hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, this, this is just crazy. Uh, the National Wildlife Refuge System would actually receive a $22 million increase in budget, and it will result in the largest budget they've ever had. And this is, this is very interesting to me. Um... Not that I'm against, you know, refuges getting more funding, but the fact that funding is being cut or eliminated for conservation on unprotected lands, you know, with actual landowners and, you know, federally protected lands are going to get an increase in funding. It's concerning to me because it it's following this this 
global trend really where we value this you know setting aside of completely humanless protected land you know this you know called like fortress conservation um and it's it's really not the way to go as much as we are so into setting aside protected areas um you know they they have their value but this I mean, I don't know if this, I'm just reading into this too much because this is what I think about, but it just, this funding change sort of reflects that to me. Um, the budget would also eliminate cooperative research units, which are hugely important because they're really effective partnerships between federal and state agencies and universities, and they're doing, you know, they're pumping out a lot of research, um, across the country and you know just like the <laughs> the fur horse thing i i don't even know how to express how concerning this is to me um these changes in in money allocation really demonstrate priorities whether that's the priorities of this in administration alone or of the general public i i don't know but it's it's just disturbing um, all around because I just don't know I don't know how we get the federal government and a lot of the public to recognize that without a healthy environment we can't be healthy you know you think <laughs> throughout all of human history that we've had that relationship and we're just so removed from it now and and these kind of decisions by our governments. They just reflect a, a huge disconnect from reality, honestly. I'm just afraid it's it's going to take something dev devastating t to wake, you know, our culture up to this reality. And then and this budget also just flies in the face of everything that conservation, everything that science-based conservation stands for and everything that we've built up to this point. So, yeah, the, this administration just continues to set back conservation efforts in, in huge strides. And, um, well, they're doing it with birds as well um, in this next news piece. Well, before before I talk about the news piece, just to give some background, um, we've talked about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in past episodes before, briefly. And this is this federal law is over 100 years old, and it's one of the foundational federal wildlife laws in North America. And essentially, it provides legal protection for migratory birds and gives federal agencies the responsibility for their conservation. And so the act doesn't distinguish explicitly between intentional and incidental death of migratory birds. But for decades, the federal government has interpreted the law by criminalizing both. So, you know, intentional death or take, as they call it in the law, is pretty obvious where you're, you know, you mean to kill the thing because you want to hunt it or, or whatever. But unintentional uh, or incidental, I mean, um, that might not be clear to people. That That's basically um, unintentional, yeah, what I just said. So, you know, a common example of incidental take might be like, golden eagles um hitting or getting killed by wind turbines you know that's 
something that energy these energy companies aren't they didn't intend to do but it's something that they're held accountable for since the death it is an incidental death um at their hand really of this protected species and so that's what's meant by incidental death or incidental take and so because the distinction between these two forms of take aren't really laid out explicitly in the law itself it's been up to the administration to to make their own interpretations and then like i said they've always interpreted it that they are both criminalizing then in walks the current trump administration to undermine all that's been accomplished in the past hundred years by this law in december 2017 they announced their legal interpretation of the act would only include intentional take and this um, decision is called the M opinion, M opinion, like the letter M, in case you want to look it, look it up. Um, and unsurprisingly, this decision favors commercial interests because they're usually the ones that have most at stake when it comes to incident, incidental take. Um, you know, the, the common person, they, they're not really dealing with this, um, with this issue. It's its development projects and and big energy companies like i said wind turbines and things like that so that's how they've been interpreting it then in at the beginning of this month or last month february 2020 the administration introduced a proposal that would make this m opinion this legal interpretation an actual federal regulation meaning that migratory birds would now only be protected from intentional take which is probably far less frequent than the incidental take. Not probably, it is. Um, and so to address this specific, so it, it, this is shocking, right? Um, so to address this need for a specific incidental take permit system, you know, external of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the Bipartisan Migratory Bird Protection Act was introduced just this past past January because they knew that the administration was was going to take it in this direction. So regardless of whether or not the administration's regulation passes, hopefully this bill will, you know, sort of put this conflict to rest and not rely on, you know, the whims of the legal interpretation of that particular administration. So there is a way if that you can comment about this proposed regulation. The comment period's open till uh, March 19th. So please go on and leave a comment. Um, we've talked about this this process before. It's how we keep the government accountable. And unfortunately, most people don't know enough about it. They don't know about it at all, or they don't do anything about it. So go and comment. You know, hopefully you're commenting against it. Um, and I'll have the link to where you can comment in the show notes. Okay, um, continuing with legal stuff, but moving to Africa, I want to talk about this fairly high-profile story that is really setting a new a new precedent, but of course it, it is having no impact in, in the mainstream media. So in the past couple months, six French and Ugandan NGOs have... Collaboratively filed a lawsuit against Total, which is an oil company 
from France, and it happens to be France's largest company of anything. And, you know, maybe listeners outside the U.S. will be familiar with Total as your local petrol provider, potentially, because they operate in 130 countries. So they're um, a corporate giant, to say the least. So the NGO plaintiffs have accused Total of human rights violations and environmental damage in relation to a drilling and pipeline projects in Uganda. So you may you may be thinking, you know, how's a lawsuit against an oil giant and a new precedent? Well, this is the first lawsuit to invoke and I should say that the lawsuit is being was filed in France, um, if that wasn't clear. This is the first lawsuit to invoke the French duty of vigilance law, which was passed in France in twenty seventeen. And this law is a first of its kind, and it's really a shining example that that France has provided for other countries. Um, And it seeks to hold domestic companies accountable for their actions in other countries. You know, a country like, or a company like Total that's based in France, but they work in other countries. And so, you know, France can't, until this kind of law, they couldn't, you know, it's up to the country in which the company is working to deal with any legal issues revolving this company, um, you know, depending on how much jurisdiction they actually have in that. Um, but now France can hold these companies accountable for what they do in other countries, which is which is major. Um especially if you're familiar with the atrocities that have been committed by corporate giants in in foreign countries um, where they haven't been held legally accountable. And I'm talking about humanitarian and environmental atrocities. Um, If you're unfamiliar with that, you should look it up and um, avoid Nestle and Dole. So anyways, Toll has already begun development of um, and preparing for this oil production in Uganda, which they're slated to begin producing in 2023. Uh, Uganda's oil reserves are the fourth largest in sub-Saharan Africa, which has, of course, um, created competitive interests among foreign... um, uh, Well, foreign interests, I guess. So this project is called the Telenga Project, and there's a lot of things that are wrong with it. Um, it's going to encroach on Murchison Falls National Park and even drill within the national park. And they plan, the project plans to drill more than 400 wells and be producing 200,000 barrels of oil per day. And Total's also involved in this $3.5 billion electrically heated pipeline that will stretch or is because it's being constructed, stretch from Uganda to the Indian Ocean across Tanzania so that this oil could be um, shipped out to wherever. And so the accusations against Total are that they have not made proper a proper vigilance plan for the part for the project as required by law, which means that they've failed to address social and environmental impacts of this whole project. Already, over 5,000 people have been displaced by the project, and a lot more are slated to be 
removed from their land and, and lose their homes. Another accusation is that the displaced people have not received adequate compensation, and actually community representatives of displaced people have said that they were coerced to leave their land, and that's that's part of this lawsuit, and that when they've tried to return to their land, um, they've been prevented from doing so by total personnel. And after, and some of these community representatives, they actually went to France to testify against Total. When they got back to Uganda, they were arrested and interrogated for really unapparent reasons. And then they were also threatened in their home, people trying to break into their home and stuff. So it really goes, I mean, this is beyond just, um, you know, a conservation issue. And it really, you know, demonstrates the power, the fact that this kind of sketchy stuff happened when these Ugandans returned home um, demonstrates the power that these big companies can have in a country and also helps explain why a lot of these past atrocities have, you know, they haven't been accountable for. And so all of this building up, building up um, to this court ruling, and then on January 30th, the French court ruled that the lawsuit was not in their jurisdiction and that it belonged to the commercial court, which sounds like a cop-out to me. Um, and then the, the plaintiffs have also, they've contested the decision, especially because they say that it undermines the law and it's going to impact future cases, you know, the way that these kind of cases are handled. So basically now everything is on hold. And so, you know, there's obvious um, environmental issues with this whole project and this this issue of the project, um, it and it's it's just where a lot of environmental and humanitarian things sort of overlap um, with legal things, and it's it's just a, a crying shame that this story isn't like making international news because because it's big because like I said, this French duty of vigilance law is is completely novel and it sets a a really important precedent. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Okay, moving to South America, a new study by um, Banderas e Rodovias, um, which I think means anteaters and highways or anteaters and roads in Spanish. Um, it's a project in Brazil. So they did this study where they're investigating roadkill mortality of giant anteaters in the Cerrado ecosystem, which is a large grassland ecosystem in Brazil. I personally love giant anteaters, and so when I saw that they were in the news, I was super excited. And then I started reading this story, and it's absolutely terrible. So in addition to tracking 44 anteaters with GPS units, which sounds super fun, the project conducted surveys of truck drivers, and they also monitored over 90,000 kilometers or 57,000 miles of roads in the Cerrado recording road kills. And so from January 2017 to December 2019, two-year period, they recorded 725 giant anteater road kills, effectively cutting the population growth in half. And then besides anteaters, they recorded almost 11,000 road kills of other wildlife like lesser anteaters and um, a handful of armadillo species. 
So these are pretty shocking numbers for such a short period of time. You know, the fact that in such a short period of time, vehicle collisions could impact the giant anteater population and, and plus all those other species that significantly. I, this issue of vehicle collisions has really is going to have long-term effects and the implications of this study are um, very significant. And this is especially important because the Cerrado is severely fragmented by corn and soybean agriculture. And because of this industry there, there's a lot of truck traffic, you know, um, transporting these crops. So yeah, I don't know really what else to say about that. Um, you should definitely check out the article. It, you know, it gives a lot more detail and has some pretty cool pictures of anteaters. You know, you can't put like a GPS collar on an anteater because they have like a very thin cone shaped kind of head and it would just slide off. So they have these like harnesses that are sort of like a weird backpack meets waist, or like backpack meets belt. Um, anyways, definitely recommend checking out the article and also checking out that project because um, I've followed their work in the past and their research is really cool. Okay, just a couple more things, a couple quick pieces. A camera trapping study just found, well, just officially found gorillas in a region of Equatorial Guinea in West Africa, Central West Africa, for the first time in a decade. And so, of course, a lot of local people have reported gorillas in the past, in the past decade. But this is the first time they've been, like, photographically recorded. Um, so that's some good news. I think that's probably why I threw it in there. <laughs> um, gorillas aren't as endangered as we think. I'll just leave it at that. Um, this is not the first story in the past couple years where, you know, a new population of gorillas was discovered or rediscovered. And then finally... Um, having a nod to the ocean. Um, a new rule by the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission that was just passed prohibits commercial fishers from targeting rays, meaning like stingrays, bat rays, um, manta rays, you know, mobular rays, and prevents fishers from targeting them and then keeps them from keeping the ones that they accidentally catch in their net. And it also requires humane handling and release of rays that are accidentally caught. So the extent to which, you know, this rule can actually be enforced on the open ocean is uh, debatable. But, you know, at least this step is taken and hopefully there's some ethical fishers out there. Um, and this is also just really important, you know, in the wake of uh, devastating commercial fisheries that have especially tuna fisheries that have a, a negative impact on um, non-target species or bycatch and, and rays are often bycatch in these fisheries. So um, that's all the news that I wanted to share. I could have done a lot more. I had a much longer list but um, didn't want to get carried away. If you you know, one, a place where you can look for, um, or a place, not look for, a place where you can find environmental news, 
like including the stuff that we share on this show. Um, you know, we always recommend Manga Bay. Earth Island Journal is one of my personal favorite um, sources, and, and they do very comprehensive, very well-researched um, stories that aren't always mainstream, like that um, total lawsuit. You could also go on the Wildlife Society page, and they have news about um, things here in the United States. And there's lots of, I can't think of other uh, news sources off the top of my head. But um, those are major ones. Manga Bay is, has extensive um, conservation news. Well, in closing, I just wanted to, you know, reflect a little bit about the podcast not too um, extensively, but just wanted to say a couple things in closing and these last words that you'll hear from me. So when Mariana and I created this podcast, our intention was to provide content about conservation and the human wildlife interface of conservation. And I think we, we've kind of filled a, a niche there, um, even as diverse as this podcast has been. And I think, you know, not <laughs> to toot our own horn, but I, th- I think we did a, a, I hope we did a fairly good job at, at covering um, a lot of major topics. But I think we, we definitely could have done a better job at... Um, uh, covering topics that aren't so polarizing. Not that we always covered polarizing topics, but I feel like that's what we spent a lot of the time discussing. And maybe I'm completely wrong in thinking that. Um, but anyways, my whole point is that I think I think we did a fairly comprehensive job. Um, you know, perhaps we did a better job covering some topics than others. But one thing for sure is that we covered a lot of ground, and um, we barely scratched the surface. And so I hope that, you know, listeners learned a lot, and I'm not just speaking for myself, I'm speaking for Mariana as well, and the other guest co-hosts. I hope that listeners learned a lot, because we definitely did. I hope that listeners, you know, enjoyed the diversity of topics that we discussed, and, you know, most importantly, I, I personally hope that listeners were exposed to issues they weren't aware of in the past. And that's that's one of the main things we also wanted with this podcast, as we expressed repeatedly, or at least I especially did, throughout the podcast, you know, we're not going to talk about lions and elephants and rhinos and whatever, pandas, because that's the mainstream stuff, and we get enough of that. And it's a lot of it's um, propaganda, to be frank. And, you know, the the really, I don't want to say important because it's all important, but the, the really important and, and crazy and impressing stuff gets drowned out by all of the um, mainstream propaganda about megafauna. Um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> A little jaded. Um, and, you know, 
I'm sure listeners know that I am very jaded um, about some things. And, you know, although my own preachiness is for sure intended to be persuasive in, in some way, my, my greater goal in, in getting fired up about things is to get others fired up as much as me. Because if, if everyone's apathetic, then, then nothing's going to change. You know, we can sit here and see all these headlines and be upset or whatever and then just do nothing. And um, that's what a lot of people do. You really have to to get fired up to, to do something about it. Um, and so this is sort of why I said earlier, you know, question the status quo. And that doesn't always mean that the status quo is wrong, but we just can't afford to be complacent and apathetic, you know, when when our world is at stake. And so we need to, you know, learn as much as we can and, and question things. Um, whether to questioning them as a way to challenge them or questioning them as a way to confirm things. So all we can hope is that our little homegrown podcast has sparked interest and passion um, and some some of you that have listened to us. You know, I'm, I'm personally not really into this whole, like, oh, let's make a difference, like that whole kind of narrative, or only you can make a difference or whatever other pe- people say. Because it's, I think it's generally a hollow narrative, and its advocates are often hip- hypocritical. But not to be too, not to be a cliche, but I hope that this podcast made a difference for some of you. Um, and what that difference is, I, I don't know. And that that sort of brings up another thing I want to say in wrapping up is, you know, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Again, very cliche. But I, I say it in the least um, cliche and also a very unhypocritical way. I take it very seriously. You know, all these things that I preach about, I feel guilty if I'm preaching about something that I'm not adhering to, which that's probably become evident whenever I'm talking about plastic or whatever. But, you know, this talking the talk and or not talking the talk, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. It's more important than ever now. You know, the mainstream save the planet narrative is is insufficient on its own, and, and that's the talk. If you're just talking that talk, it nothing is going to happen. You know, it requires spreading that campaign by talking it and also living it out in your life, living it out in your life for other people to see, um... And then it just has this cumulative effect. And so it's it's easy to, like I said, sit and read international headlines about conservation or whatever and demand that foreign communities and governments protect wildlife that is exotic to us. It's not exotic to them. Um, and so when you have that inclination... I encourage you to just stop and think, you know, if the situation was reversed, how would my life and decisions look, you know, from a conservation perspective, if someone else was saying that I needed to behave this way? Because, you know, our lives and I'm getting all philosophical here, our lives and our impacts are are cumulatively cumulatively made up of our daily decisions when you when you think about it in its most basic form and so 
make I encourage you to make decisions that you expect strangers, you know, in some foreign country where there's lions and elephants, make decisions that you expect them to make. You know, say no to plastic. And when I say no, I mean no, none. Um, hold the government accountable for their management of your natural resources. Go and sign that or make a comment about that um, Migratory Bird Act regulation. Um, share what you learn. You keep it to yourself. Nothing's going to happen. Engage in difficult conversations. You know, not everything is as as black and white as we may think or as Jonah may say like for horses even though it is kill them all you know act within a community-based mindset we've talked a lot about communities here you know our land ethics episode please go and listen to that with our guest Eric Freifogel really this is this is the root of of where we make a difference is the community and engage in your community you know, these are the ways that you actually make a difference. Not posting on Facebook, not criticizing poachers for killing rhinos, or not donating to World Wildlife Fund or whatever. Insert any global mega conservation organization. So yeah, that's what I have to say. <laughs> You're, the, it's the, the details of, of your life and the decisions. That's what makes a difference. And I hope that... Um, people realize that and that hopefully you've gotten some of that maybe from our sustainability tips in past episodes or what have you so in in closing i just want to genuinely thank everyone who's listened to us in the past um whatever a little over a year and a half or so and also thanks to my co-host mariana sorry that she hasn't been with me the past couple episodes. And then also thanks to guest co-hosts Camden and Leon for joining me to talk about a variety of things. And then also just thanks to those of you that wrote to us about episodes. Um, we appreciated your input and just having a conversation. So, like I said, I think Conservation Chronicles sort of f- filled a particular niche in the podcast world and you know, ending the podcast, there's going to be a void, I think, and I don't think that I'm just patting our, patting us on the back. I, I think it's true, and that's one of the reasons why we created the podcast, because we wanted to listen to a podcast that was like this, and there wasn't one, and to my knowledge, there still isn't one, to be honest, and so, you know, in our absence, um, there's a couple podcasts that I recommend that are even more niche than this podcast. Um, Herpetological Highlights, which we've mentioned before, is a good one. Um, If you're into reptiles and amphibians, especially the science research about them. Um, And if you're into birds and birding, you can check out the American Birding Podcast. They cover a variety of topics, not always conservation, you know, specific, but um, if you're a bird nerd, I recommend it. And then um, there's also an upcoming podcast by one of our listeners, Michael Hawk, called Nature's Archive, which is slated to launch in the coming months, probably May or June, he said. And from my correspondence with Michael, it sounds like he's going to be interviewing conservation professionals about a variety of things. Um, So hopefully 
you know, I'm not trying to set a standard, but hopefully he can maybe fill some of the void that, that we leave. So look out for that podcast, you know, in May or June. I'll have the link to his website for it. You know, he's he's still preparing to launch it, so it's not out yet. But come May or June, um, look for that to sort of fill this this void. Also, by the way, Michael, that's I'm jealous of your last name. I wish I wasn't too far into my career to change my name to like Jonas Storkman or something something um, ridiculously bird obsessed. Anyways, that is that is all, folks. Um, if you have any questions or comments or any feedback or whatever, you can email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. We'll still maintain that email in the future. And if you haven't been a long-time listener or you've missed some episodes, now's your chance to go back and listen to past episodes. We'll still have our website, conservationchronicles.podbean.com, where all of our past episodes are there, or you can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, just thanks for listening, everybody.